You're listening to the Scottish Football Forum's podcast, Euro Special, the home of Euro 2020 banter. I'm a sensation. You try me once, you're back for more. Oh, yes, sir. I can boogie, but I need a certain song. I can boogie, boogie, woogie, on the low. Oh, yes, sir. I can boogie, if you stay, you can't go wrong. I can boogie, boogie, woogie, on the low. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Scottish Football Forums Podcast. I'm John and we have a different kind of throwback as we're going all the way back to 2020. But don't worry, not literally, um, we don't want to reel a pandemic and all the rest of it. Um, so join me in the podcast, our throwback specialists, Chris and Scott. How are you doing guys? Welcome back. It's letting you go there, for once. I know I'm usually the one that jumps in first, but I thought I'd, I'd leave it for you. But no, it's good, uh, good to be here, John. Thank you. I talked enough in the real 2020. Well, apart from my interview, John Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think when we looked back at the audio, that was just um, one way trap it, wasn't it? I think me and you said about five things the whole night for two hours. Absolutely loved it. We had a brilliant chat. It definitely was. There was a lot of good things. I mean, to be fair, I mean, we joke about the pandemic, but there was a lot of good things that happened um, in terms of, you know, the stuff that we did for the podcast. And then it culminated in qualification for Euro 2020. So we're looking back at that qualification journey. And who better bring in than a man who's written about it? Hamden Road podcast host, BBC commentator, and author of recently published um, A Nation Again by Pitch Publishing, Andy Barge. Andy, welcome to the SFF podcast. How are you? Excellent, John. Thanks very much for having me on. It's uh, it's good for me to be the guest on your podcast rather than the other way around, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to um, the semi-final of your Hamden North quiz next week. Um, that'll be a tough yes. one. <laughs> I've just, I've actually, I've actually just started putting the the questions together uh, or the rounds together. Uh, I'm excited for that. God, um, I'm very interested to see what you've come up with. But anyway, this tonight's all about um, yourself and um, Rick. We've got to start. Um, wh- what was your idea behind um, a nation again, and in fact the title? Because obviously it's um, taking part of um, Florida Scotland, which Ian Crocker, when we qualified that night in Serbia, pretty much quoted um, most of the, the anthem. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, the inspiration then. So, do you know, the ironic thing is, I've never been a massive reader, right? So I like non-fiction books and specifically football books, autobiographies, that kind of thing. And when I was younger, well, I would say certainly no older than 16, maybe even as young as 13, 14. I read when I was on holiday a couple of books on 78 and 74. I think Richard Gordon might have written one of them, uh, How a Nation Lost the World Cup. Can't remember which one was which. And just really enjoyed it and thought, what an amazing thing to be able to chart Scotland's experience at a major tournament, because at that point, that was something that I'd never been able to enjoy. I was born in 93, so I was four, uh, about to turn five when France 98 happened. I've got a very, very bloody memory of it. Can't remember any of the actual games, just the kind of atmosphere in the house. But if, you, if any of you have, or any listeners have got the book and started reading it, then that's kind of how I start the book, about one of my earliest memories being in the living room at my family home in Ayrshire. Um, on the day that we played Brazil and just kind of the atmosphere, but that's that's literally it. So 
one of my things after reading those books was I would love to be able to write about us at a major tournament. But when we beat Serbia, I thought, why don't I write about our journey there? Because it was a long, arduous one. I toyed for a while about writing about the wilderness, wilderness years and kind of the self-deprecating angle and all that sort of stuff. But I thought, no, I'll wait. And, and I'll wait until we actually get a qualification over the line and I'll I'll do my best to, to put it all down on pages. And Pitch weren't happy enough with it. And, and the ball kind of started rolling from there. The name, I was toying between a nation again. And similarly, you make the comparison with the national anthem. It was either a nation again or we can still rise now, which I don't mind. But I feel like a nation again is a bit snappier uh, and just generally better. I got the opinion of a few people and they said they preferred a nation again. So I went with that. Uh, so yeah, that was the, the decision making on the on the name. And yeah, it was after reading books about 74 and uh, 78 that I thought, you know, this is something that I would like to do in my life, write about Scotland, get into a major tournament. And then when we actually qualified, I thought, you know, what, I'm just going to start this now and write about our journey back there. So I, I think the the title. And I'm a bookseller uh, for Waterstones, so a book title and a cover actually do sell books. It's, it's what people say, "Oh, don't judge a book by its cover," and it's, it's so not true. People <laughs> judge, and the, the the actual cover, the front cover, tells the story as does the, the title. And if you read the book, and I'm, I've read, say, 80% of it, I'm fairly gone through it. Really? Wow, uh, that's so rapid. Again, I'm a bookseller, so during my breaks, <laughs> I, I can read the book, so that's not so bad. <laughs> that's not so bad. But um, and, and it, the, the whole kind of title goes throughout the full book. You can get the fact that we are actually a, a nation again within the football community within our own lives, you know, because as, mm. as you said, it took so long to get back into, you know, actually dreaming about competitions, never mind getting into competitions. And, you know, it, it does, you know, and, and you do market very well. And I, I, I do think you've started with a strong title and it just goes, it, it, it is a title that actually goes throughout the full, the full book. Thank you. And in terms of um, the writing process, so um, you took the step of writing it and then um, sending it to Pitch and uh, maybe one or two others. Um, whereas, you know, we've spoken before, you know, we added it was I put the idea and then started the writing. Um, so what made you do it that way, you know, put your writing in and then obviously send it to Pitch? Yeah. I started writing, so I wrote the introduction and I'd started doing some research. This would have been, well, honestly, the day I started writing the introduction, the day after we beat Serbia. And then I kind of get stuck into the research. And I had a few interviews lined up really quickly, just through people that I know at work, for example. Um, I was able to get I was able to get Stephen O'Donnell and David Marshall, who ironically were the two that came to the launch night on Sunday. I got them lined up within weeks. They, they were both very happy to talk just through mutual friends. And then before I knew it, I'd written 
I, I must have written three chapters again. I, Alex McLeish was was set up pretty quickly, and it, and it, I ha- I think it was the fact that I'd started writing and I didn't really want to stop in case it ruined my flow and spend time going to publishers with this idea. And what if they said no? Would that have killed my momentum or my hunger to go and finish it anyway? So it was. If a, look, if a publisher turned around to me and said, "We're not interested in this, Andy. Sorry," which did happen at the start. Pitch actually said no to me before they said yes. So I had to kind of stick at it a bit. And if no publishers had taken the bait, then I would have written my last sentence, saved the word document, shut it down, and thought, okay, I've I've reached or I, I've finished what I set out to do. Sadly, no one's wanting to publish it, but I've finished what I set out to do, which was write about Scotland's return to a major tournament. When Pitch eventually... No, I say eventually. It was only two times. The, the first time I approached them, they said the the timing wasn't right. Uh, that was quite soon after the actual Euro 20, 2020 finals. So, uh, and I was still trying to get a couple of interviews lined up at that point. So they said to us, "Come back, come back later in, in the future if, when the timing's better," which is ultimately what happened. But I think the I think the the main thing was that I didn't want to get a knockback too quickly, which would then maybe. Um, dilute the process or hamper the any sort of momentum that I had because I was feeling really excited about it and at that point I, if if a publisher honestly if I didn't get one it wouldn't really have made a big difference to me because I would I would have just been happy to set to achieve what I was I set out to do which was write about the the journey there but then when you get the yes from the publisher it kind of makes you rethink all that and you're like thank god someone's publishing this otherwise it would have been Two years of work just to sit in a saved word template or word document for for forever on a USB drive. So it, it felt great when Pitch eventually uh, were happy enough to to invest in it, and I'm I'm very grateful for that. Uh, Paul and Jane, same two that you'll have dealt with, I'm sure. Yeah, John, uh, they yeah they were they were invested, um, and and the timing was right. So yeah, I I did do it the other way around from you, but I just think it was a combination of me not not really knowing how to do it. And wanting to just progress as quickly as I could, um, and get stuff written down to send to a publisher, kind of is what made it that way. There's no right or wrong, um, you know. The, the fact is, um, there's different there's different ways of doing it as long as you get the finished product. And you know, it, I'm, I'm only a couple of chapters in. I've en- enjoyed it so far. Scott says he's eighty percent. And Chris, so are you about to jump in? That's something there. Yeah, I was just going to. Um, would you have considered self-publishing if Pitch hadn't come back? I would have. I haven't researched a single iota of that, so I think I would. I would have had to carefully weigh that up. I'm. I'm not sure off the top of my head at all what the cost implications are of that, the marketing implications, how you would get it to, for example, to Scott at Waterstones or or anybody. I'm not sure the ins and outs of that, so I would needed to do, to do a lot a lot of research on it. I wouldn't have been opposed to it if it if it had worked out financially viable and uh, and worth it, but. I wasn't wanting to settle for that. I, I was happy. Just if a publisher came in, I would. I was happy just to kind of cross all the hurdles myself and just say, "Okay, that's me done it," and then consider something else in the future. But when pitch showed their interest, which would have been May, April, May last year, probably when I got my deadline for the end of the summer, so I was writing it for need enough. 18 months before a publisher actually committed to it. So it was a, a long wait. 
So I think in today's day and age, because I think, say, 10, 15 years ago, self-publishing was fairly, you know, not big. It's never been big, but it's it was, it was probably more normal. Whereas probably now what I would imagine is more common would be to take maybe a, 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 part, like a chapter or your introduction, put that online, and then get some feedback, get some... Uh, trajectory from that and then go back to a publisher and say, you know, listen, I've put it on this part online. There's a lot of people interested in it and that's maybe a better way of, of going around. But there is self-publishing that still goes ha- goes on in Waterstones and it is mainly kind of football stuff, like community stuff. So that's how we buy in as a, as a community thing because it's something that we can sell locally. So Rangers and Celtic books are, are kind of prime example. Um, but I actually think the timing of it, they were probably right. It was probably too early to begin with, but I think you've hit the, the kind of right time in a sense that when I'm reading this book, I know I'm going to read it again in 10 years' time because I want to feel the exact same feelings that I felt during 2020 mm. and 2019. And because you've caught it so well, because it's so fresh still in your memory, and you've got all the the people who were actually there, so you you know the McLeish stuff's really good. You know your your various players who were all there. You know I'm thinking when I'm talking talk about you know even now it's not that far away. But to to find out about the kind of COVID restrictions the players had to go through from their own mouths is still very interesting, and that's going to be in ten years' time when you read reread the book because it's it reminds me there was a book that. Um, David Bevan did about Leicester City winning the Premier League and he, he, he was about the same kind of time scale as you, about two or three years after the, the event and I, I, I get the exact same vibes from it in the sense of I'm going to read this again in 10 years time and totally try and immerse myself back into that period so I think you've hit it in a good time in the sense of it's going to be in another 10 years you could probably republish it and get another whole load of people because of that nostalgia thing that John got with his book. Yeah, I, I th- the nostalgia thing's interesting because hopefully we'll have been to a few more tournaments between now and the next 10 years, but this will be, for many people, including myself, the one that kicked it all off for this generation. We came so close numerous times. I th- I, to be honest, I think that if someone out there wanted to write a book um, that could remember it a bit more clearly on the 2008 campaign... Maybe not a full-on publishing, but like if they wanted to chart it in some way, I mean, there, there's probably enough nostalgia in that for people considering what we achieved and how close we came and the heart-wrenching end to it. So the fact that this actually went got us over the line, I'm hoping, yeah, through the nostalgic lens, um, recency bias as well, um, because it, in my opinion, it is the, the best night as a, as a Scotland fan of my life, to, age-dependent for that, of course. But the fact that even in 10 years, yes, this will be the one that everybody remembers as what hopefully kicked this group of Scotland players off to making a return to the at least the Euros a regular occurrence, then then it could be a, a good bit of timing. I, I, I'm with you now. At the time, I, I was a bit confused why Pitch were bringing up the time aspect. But the... And then when, when I signed the contract, my, my deadline was the end of August, I think. And I was hoping that they'd be able to get it out in time for Christmas. But 
the fact that we've got a new campaign starting in about a month from now, and this is the campaign for the Euro 24 Championship, this is about the most recent successful one. So it kind of falls on nicely, I'm hoping, like so that we've got a campaign starting very soon and then on the shelves or on Amazon or, or Pitch, whatever, you can see, remember what happened in the last one. This, this is what happened the last time we tried to qualify for the Euros and now let's go and do it again. Yeah, we're, we're kind of in that position now that we're, we're far enough away from 2020 that it's it's now nostalgic, but it's still very fresh in the memory of just about everybody who read it. I don't know, like, it's not the same as like, like, like John's book where you're talking like 30 years on. Like, we all remember it and we read the book and remember how we felt back then, but the, the whole, there's a whole generation of people who don't remember Euro 92. So it's it's yeah. quite informative for them, and then like, your book will get to that point. Like the next generation will read this and go, "Well, wow! What, mm-hmm. what, imagine going twenty three years with qualifying. We did everything, pretty much every tournament these days." <laughs> but it's funny for old generation, or for for my generation. You guys are slightly older, obviously. But um, apart from Andy, who's slightly younger, well, not slightly, quite a bit younger. <laughs> the the uh, but for for my generation, this one's still the biggest one because I grew up kind of used to qualifying. As a, mm-hmm. as a youngster, so this uh, so it, it meant so much more to qualify for this one because we'd gone so long without. So it's great to, to kind of you know read this and think to myself again, go back to before we qualified and thinking about head, you know that we hadn't qualified for so long, and you know the apathy levels, you know when you read, you know the, the certain um, attendance figures that you put at the start of you know of. Uh, Cliche's time and stuff like that, and I remember going to the Costa Rica game, and you're you're still you're hoping, but there's not a full on hope. You know, you're, you're thinking Aye. to yourself, well, we don't know what's actually going to happen, and we're so used to not qualifying. Uh, and that's that must, that must be Scott. That must be about five years now. Well, it will be. It was tw- it was March twenty eighteen, I think. So pretty much five years since that game, which just kind of backs up what Chris was saying a minute ago. This is still a tad nostalgic because. Yeah. Five years is is not really um, very recent um, in the grand scheme of things. Look how much happened in between. And I'm glad that, you know, McLeish got a big mention and you got to speak to McLeish because I think he his role in it is kind of underestimated now. Uh, I think he did a lot to actually bet in some of those players that Steve Clark relied upon. Uh, he was the one that tried the three-at-the-back system first, got kind of a wee bit used to it. It's unfortunate he had to suffer the the rumours um, regarding his health and the, the obviously the the loss to Kazakhstan. It's unfortunate for him that he had to, to go through that for us to then get to Steve Clark, who then eventually get us to the to the Europe. But I'm glad that you mentioned that you, you touched early on, obviously very early on on the God Strachan era. I think you know I always remember God Strachan talk about mentality, and I think that was a big part of Scotland not qualifying. I think a mentality had kind of developed. I don't believe still that the the size of our players had as much to do with it as gotten kind of, no. you know, with everything. But, and I, I'm, I'm not a fan of Malcolm McKay, but I'm glad to have read what I did in a, in a sense that he also brought in players that, you know, started it all off as well. And <laughs> it's good that it wasn't just started off with Steve Clark. He kind of showed that it actually was a few years before that. It's two, two and a half years now since, well, not two and a half, two, almost two and a half years since we beat Serbia. It was three years between the 2-2 draw in Slovenia 
and that Serbia game, right? So it's just a flavour. Here are some of the players that played in that 2-2 draw in Slovenia that weren't involved uh, against Serbia, right? So Beran, Mulgrew, two centre-halves, not there. Phillips, MacArthur, Fletcher, Bannon was the midfield. Martin up front with Griffiths, who only came off the bench to kick uh, the ball once in the penalty shootout. That was a massive transitional period for us. Absolutely huge. And McLeish... I don't. I wouldn't quite go far as saying that he was the glue, but he certainly had his hands full with trying to juggle so many players that were worthy of being given an opportunity to prove himself. Christie, for one, um, I would say that obviously Mackay capped him against Holland, but he became very quickly an important player uh, under McLeish through that game away to Albania and at home to to Israel. Um, I think that McTominay, yeah, well, uh, probably didn't really show his true quality under McLeish, but that was his first uh, in- involvement at that point. And, you know, we, we needed to to shake things up. And I touch on this in the book, actually, that when striking, uh, it was either, it couldn't have been when he left. I don't remember him doing a, a presser off the top of my head, but it would have been um, after the Slovenia game. And, and, and he was saying that, nobody will get any more out of these players than, than I've managed to to get from them. And at that point, I think a lot of people raised an eyebrow and thought, hmm, not sure you're on the right lines there, Gordon, we are capable of better. But nobody did get more out of those players because nobody would pick them to get any more out of them. That like, that was the last they were ever going to give for many of them. MacArthur hung up his boots pretty quickly after that. Uh, Fletcher even looking... At the bench, I mean, Anya wasn't really involved. Much more Snodgrass chucked it when Clark came in. Uh, Forrest never really kicked on. So, yeah, th- th- these are players that never really were given the chance to give any more for Scotland because the time was upon us for a, almost a fresh slate. And McLeish, he, he had no option but to take responsibility for starting that wheel turning. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, he, I, I thought, his picture on the um the cover was um a touch of class to be um real. So that's my favourite part just because um just simply because people forget his role in the journey and I thought it was um good that you highlighted that. Um Grant Campbell asked the question um about all the players that he interviewed, which one surprised you the most in either a good or bad way? You'll have to edit down this thinking time. Uh... <laughs> Sorry to put you in the spot, but then you do it to us sometimes in Hamden North, so. <laughs> I would say I would, there were some that I knew would be would be great. I was confident that McGinn was one of the last guys that I interviewed. I was confident that he'd be would be great, and he was. Um, I was I was I was very surprised. I didn't know him at all um, about how chatty and how much of a strong memory Declan Gallagher had. I'd never really met him before, uh, even for Red TV. I hadn't worked with him at that point. So, yeah, I was I was really surprised um, about Declan Gallagher. Uh, I knew that Sod was a lovely guy. knew that Marsh was a lovely guy. Christy, I didn't really know what to expect from Christy. Uh, I was really pleased with the Christy interview. So, so I'd say that. The, I, I don't think any of them disappointed me. The hardest one was... Kenny McLean because it was over the phone all the other ones were on Zoom calls so it was it was harder to and, and it was done like through the Norwich media person so 
I didn't really feel like I was talking to someone that I was building up much of a like a rapport with because it was just like a 20, 25 minute phone call and it was over quite sharpish compared to the rest of them. Stephen O'Donnell gave me about an hour of his time over three Zoom calls, so three hours in total. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to do that. I mean, these guys are just more than happy to reminisce and chat about the good times, um, which is which is amazing. Um, so I don't, I don't know about surprise. M- maybe Dykes was great as well. Um, Christy, maybe only because I didn't really know what to expect from him. Uh, and and he was he was absolutely first class. That was a, a real stroke of luck. That one, I uh, I was panicking about how to get him. I mentioned this at the launch night. Celtic weren't playing ball whatsoever um, with my attempts to get James Forrest, and I knew that Christy, or I had a feeling, and had heard a few things that Christy was maybe going to be leaving Celtic. So I thought I'll just wait and see where he goes, and then try and get him through his new club media officer if he leaves, and. I was doing, <coughs> sorry, I was doing Red TV with Steve Tosh and he just asked me, kind of like, oh, what do you do outside the Red TV, blah, blah, blah. And I mentioned the book and I said, I'm having, I was I'm having real trouble thinking about how to try and track down Ryan Christie. And Steve Tosh just, Steve Tosh just went, is that Charlie's my best pal? So like, yeah. that was just a complete off the cuff stroke of luck. And a week later, Christie was sitting down with me on Zoom for an interview, Ryan. And, uh, and I sat again, sat with him for over a couple of Zoom calls over over that afternoon, and, and that was it. Ticked off. So I was delighted with delighted with that. Um, and the, I wouldn't say disappointing, but the hardest one was Kenny McLean because it was the only one that wasn't done on a Zoom call. So I, I couldn't really read his body language or his facial expressions or anything. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good answer. Um, and in terms of we had um, you had your lunch night on Sunday um, night there. Um, at Sloan's, which was a really good night. So as we touched upon at the start with um Lewis Science presenting, we had um Stephen Azal, um Dave Marshall and um Luke Shanley's panel. Um it was just a great night. I mean, um for me as I've mentioned to you before, I think Stephen O'Donnell has um another career up his sleeve as an after dinner speaker as he was um so funny. How did you think the night went and what was your kind of favourite moments about the night? Hard to narrow that down, I know, because it was such a good night, but um can you just describe as best you can? I think the night went well. I, I, I look at it through a different prism from, from as everybody else because I'm not there as a as a punter. I, I think that there could have been three or four wee minuscule things that could have gone wrong and I'm sure everybody would have still had an, a lovely evening and, and a nice time reminiscing the, the qualification journey. But remarkably, I don't think anything really noticeably went, went wrong. The, the technology didn't let us down. The players turned up in one piece. I was kind of worried on Saturday and Sunday as one of the are one of these guys going to get injured. Um, are they going to forget that they've double booked themselves? They've got an in-laws' birthday dinner or something. But no, they were they turned up, and when I knew the technology was working, I'd completely relaxed. And as soon as the evening started, Lewis, I've known Lewis for ages, were very close mates, and I, I knew that he would carry the whole thing now with his eyes shut. So I was completely at ease with Lewis leading it. Look, Shanley's. Um, get nothing to worry about as far as speaking in front of a crowd or a camera goes and the players I think that Saud is probably more uh, charming and on the front foot than Marshall probably that's not to be disparaging towards Marshall he's, Marshall's more of a he's a cooler customer he's more reserved 
but sod, you're absolutely bang on, Johnny. Like he's he's very humorous in a self-deprecating way. I think he recognises uh, what his place has been and is in the kind of Scotland journey. It was interesting that when we opened it up for a Q and A at the end, and I think it was Gordon Sheik actually asked him, asked who, the panel, "Who are you most excited about coming through the ranks?" His answer was Nathan Patterson, the man that's there to steal his place. So, like, he, he, he's he's got great self awareness. Sod. As uh, a, a favourite moment, <clears throat> uh, I think everybody watching Marshall save with him probably. Uh, that was the most wholesome moment, if you want to to say that, because he was in the middle of talking about something. Uh, um, the the playoff final at that point, Marshall, and then when I had a big screen behind me, uh, and I was kind of playing highlights from throughout the, the qualification journey, and when it came to Marshall Saviour, I think he actually said, "I'm just going to watch this a second and everybody just kind of shut up and watched Marshall save Mitrovic's penalty, and then everybody burst out in a a ripple of applause, which was which was nice. So yeah, that that warmed my heart. That was nice. Uh, yeah, and, and sawed throughout it, just kind of pointing out his uh, important moments or moments of contribution, whether it was a high press to then give the ball to Lyndon Dykes to feed Ryan Fraser, etc. I was quick to point out when he'd had a moment of impact in a in a positive sense, which was quite funny throughout. So, yeah, I would say my, my favourite moment was probably everybody watching the penalty save. Uh, and I'd, I'm just generally pleased with how the night went. Lots of books... So lots of good feedback. So honestly, can have have no complaints, and a great crowd from from everyone that was there. Yeah, well, let's hear now from uh, some of those who were there. Um, so we've got Hamden Row regulars Gordon and Ben, um, host Lewis Irons, and comedian for the night Stephen O'Donnell. But first, though, a couple of skies. Luke Shanley. Um, he, he he was one of only five journalists in Serbia. It's been a great evening. It's good to see a great turnout as well because I think at the end of the day. Probably David Marshall, Stephen O'Donnell, the guys that were getting wheeled in when they're 90 to talk about this day. And you hope it's not the last time uh, that we qualify, but I'm sure I'm sure with the generation of players we've got, it won't be. But uh, yeah, it was great. And it's good. you could talk about that all night. It, it was fantastic. Just, But even just looking back at some of the Nations League stuff, looking back at uh, the, the games, you know, even the Nations League games building up to the playoffs, uh, you forget so much. So it was great to sort of relive that because it was all part of the journey. Absolutely, and um, one thing that wasn't mentioned, I don't know if it will get covered in the book, mind you, but uh, your colleague Ian and his commentary, yes, one big, yes, I love it, never forget that, but for him as well, he was tagged unfairly with the um, jinx because when he started at Sky, they didn't qualify. How relieved a man was he when they had that night? Well, he, he loved it, and he did see he wrote a book himself. Uh, just a couple of years before that saying the two things that he wanted to commentate on Scottish football was Hibs winning the Scottish Cup which he got to do because it was a he had done Hibs in so many finals not that he's a Hibs fan anyway but just that it was something that you know it was the nearly thing and obviously the big thing Scotland qualified for a major tournament so he got to do that in quite relatively quick succession and uh, you know I think for, for Ian I think the disappointing thing was he wasn't able to be there on site because of the COVID restrictions and, and that but still I think it got across him and uh, and for him and David Brove and the passion that they had just to see Scotland there fantastic and I, I actually did text the two of them after that game saying I'm actually really pleased for you guys you finally got to commentate on it so and it was all good in the end yeah it was magic and obviously for you you were one of the lucky few journalists when you think back about that night 
been one of what, five Scottish journalists that were there with Lisa Stephen McGowan out there. How privileged are you that you were out there? Uh, it's just, time, so. uh, it, was, it was really strange, but I think for me, you realise how lucky you were because I think everyone in this room would have probably been there or would have liked to have been there uh, given uh, what was uh, you know going on in the world that couldn't be. So yeah, absolutely, a, a total privilege just to be there, but I think there was five or six of us, uh, a couple of broadcasters and um, you know, in the end, I think, uh, I think that Ryan Christie moment, I, I don't think I'll ever top that in terms of type of interview, magnitude interview and just um, what it meant and the way the emotion, you know, probably have to admit from both of us, you know. And finally, the word on the man who's obviously brought us here tonight, um, Andy Bars, you know, how much are you looking forward to reading that book and what about the effort he's put in? Yeah, I got it uh, the other day ago, so I want to start reading it, but I want to read it when I can have a real go at it, you know, rather than just uh, dribs and drabs because you're kind of reliving your own memories and then you're living it through everyone else as well and I think uh, fair play to him because it's a lot of persistence nowadays and to get the access to players can be difficult so he's been persistent getting that and uh, you know I think we all want to remember it we're all that's why we're all here and uh, he's done a great uh, great tower of work pulling it all together and I think that's the thing it's all well and good getting the interviews but then putting it all into practice as you'll know yourself so I think uh, you know good on him and I hope it does well Gordon we've been at the, um, the launch of your Hamden Road colleague Andy Barsi's um, book how proud are you of him? Uh, absolutely so so proud um, obviously when I first sort of came into the Hamden Roar podcast in 2019 it was sort of Obviously, we hadn't qualified yet, and then as soon, quite soon after, you know, I, I knew that Andy was had this idea of uh, of creating this book, and so I've, I've seen this uh, develop from the very early stages right the way through. So, you know, for everyone who picks up the book, what you'll get is an incredibly well-researched, passionately put together uh, piece of uh, piece of uh, non-fiction. Um, but obviously, what 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 you don't see behind the scenes is, is the hours, the blood, the sweat, the tears. The effort it's taken to get the interviews uh, and to do the research, um, Andy's done a phenomenal job. Um, obviously, as someone who is personally named in the acknowledgements of the book, I'd like to think that some of it's down to me, but Andy did the vast majority of the work, and I couldn't be happier for him. And in terms of the night itself, I mean, what have you thought about the night having Stephen O'Donnell, David Marshall, Luke Chandler share their memories? Fantastic. I mean, what what an absolutely in- incredible panel, and obviously excellent Lewis Irons uh, hosting things as well, peppering the questions. Obviously. Lewis was there in Belgrade as well for that incredible night. And look, I, I, don't, I don't know what Marshall and Stephen O'Donnell have in their future, but look, if they if they want to do a sort of double act routine for the after dinner circuit, they've got that in their locker. They were full of stories, full of banter, full of laughs. It's just been a great night with some great people uh, reminiscing about one of the best nights in modern Scottish football history. So Ben, you've just witnessed um, your good friend Andy um, at the launch of his book. Just um, sum up what this means to you as a friend. Yeah, honestly. So I used to work with Andy at the newspaper. He was at the Edge Re-Advertiser. I was at the Wishful Press. We would always talk about football. We were supposed to be news reporters at that point. We hadn't really fallen into sport. So um, it's just been great to see. This has obviously been a passion of his for a long time. To see that dream come true. It's just, yeah, very proud moment. Um, Couldn't be a nicer guy for it to happen to as well. You know, there's people that you just root for in life. And he's one of those. Very talented, great speaker. He did phenomenally well tonight bringing this all together and yeah just I can't wait to read the book personally and I just you know wish that everyone with an interest in Scottish football buys the book because I know it's going to be top notch.
Yeah, and we've seen um, we've seen Tam Cowan in the audience tonight asking the question at the end. Um, do you think when he hangs up the microphone for um, after speaking about that Stephen O'Donnell's a national successor? Oh, 100%. Um, you know, we've interviewed Stephen O'Donnell before, and he has that sort of self-deprecating humour that we just love, you know, as a nation. And it just sums up his, you know, his career almost with Scotland played out so well. He had such a big, big part playing for Scotland that maybe doesn't really get appreciated. So I'm, re- I'm really glad that he was here tonight as well. Like a really good, you know, he sort of sums up the sort of character of the squad that did this amazing thing, you know, and no one can ever take that away from him. So, yeah, really, really great to have him and Marshall. Lewis, you've just um, presented the the boot launch of one of your best mates, Andy Bars. Just, yeah. well, just, first of all, describe that moment of the an honour being able to do such a thing for your mate. Um, mate, it's huge pride. Like uh, I kind of made a bit of a half joke about it that went down like a lead balloon. Uh, <laughs> but I, I said at the time, you know, so grateful to be here and having seen the you know, blood, sweat, and tears he's put into it. He's described it as a labour of love and everything he's done. Like he's put in such a shift, but like I'm so proud of him. And I do, I, I do, I do think very highly of him. So it was great to be asked to do it, and then. To see it come to was, was brilliant. Yeah, and you've obviously known the journey that he's been going through, and he's also kept it quiet, apart from yeah. obviously close people like yourself. Just then, um, what's that journey been like? From what have you witnessed? It yeah, cha- challenging to be blunt. Um, I know how, how much you, you know yourself, John. Like the writing a book's not an easy thing, but also lining up interviews with people that are very often well protected in the football sphere. Like it's not easy to get these things over the line. So he had knockbacks, he had challenges, but. Otherwise, he, he came through them and he got them over the line. And you know, I, I was an ear to to kind of his troubles at points. And, and my good mate Kieran was who's looking over at me just now. Actually, um, was a, I was a shoulder to lean on and, and stuff as well. Um, so his you know close mates were, were a big part in that. But it's a challenge, mate. And he got through it. And well done to him. It was such a nice moment holding the book for the first time. And in terms of yourself, I mean, you've also been doing media um, for yeah. quite a while. But having your dad. And your brother, yeah. and I know your sister couldn't make it because of um, commitment to sports, yeah. saying, yeah, what a pitch excuse. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you're like? Um, having, having them up, um, you know, watching you, how did that make you feel? Yeah, great, mate. I, like, uh, my dad obviously came up to me afterwards and said, he always tells me how proud he is, to be fair, but tonight he said the same, and listen, it's, you know, I've said it many times as a presenter, it's, if you ever think it's about yourself, you're probably going on the wrong track, and for me it's about making sure that the guys marsh, sod and all that, and Andy himself like kind of have the floor to say what they want to say and have a good time with it and I think the lads really came out their shell it was brilliant so delighted that it went well and when are you going to follow in your father's footsteps uh-huh. by coming on SFF podcast next week I think is it not you know what I'm <laughs> well arrange that soon very well um, and final words just um, sum up Andy off oh, how long have you got <laughs> nah, a great guy dedicated hard working guy um, and I one of my best mates in the world so I'll never have a bad thing to say about him so uh He's done brilliantly and I'm I really proud. Stephen, you've just been at the um, boot launch you calling the Euro 2020 journey. How much fun did you have tonight? Yeah, no, it was great. Obviously, whenever there's good times, it's always nice to, to reminisce. Hopefully there's more to come in a, in a national front. And then for me personally, just trying to get my career back on track. So, so no, look, it's, um, it was a great night tonight. I think everybody enjoyed it. Everybody seemed to leave a smile on their face. <laughs> and, um, and hopefully the book does well. And then in terms of Andy writing this book, you know, what... what um, what kind of th- does that mean to you, seeing someone put that much effort into such a story? Look, I think it just goes to show you what we, we've seen whenever we qualified, is that the, the qualification at that time through Covid made a lot of people's years, and uh, 
some son's lifetime. So um, to be part of that and in the book, just topping that off will be hopefully be a, a good read when I get the chance to read it. And, um, and yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to read it as I'm sure everyone is. It's good. And see when you wrap up your playing career, are you going to be doing after dinner circuit? Because I think you put yourself a good addition tonight. Ah, no, look, I think uh, getting asked questions, I'm easy enough. Uh, but speaking in front of crowds is certainly not something I'm comfortable with. Nor playing in front of any crowds either. <laughs> That was good of the guys to give us um, their their time and uh, Andy. See when you um, hear that back, um, how, how does that make you feel when you listen to it? I think quite humbled, and in, in a way, in a, a weird way, I've thought to, for someone to say that they feel humbled, I think it it would infer that they have to perceive they have some sort of stature in the first place. And I don't want it to come across that way because I don't. I'm just a Scotland fan that decided to write a book. But when I hear my mates talking of like the pride and how happy and stuff they are for me, that then that makes me feel really, really full of love. Um, and sod coming along. I mean, him and Marsh and looked at this out of nothing, but the the goodness of their heart and that I'm very very generous and uh, sorry, I'm very very grateful and and appreciative of of the all the time that they've given me. Um, so yeah, it, it makes me feel uh, proud myself to have found mates like Gordon, Ben and, and, and Lewis and then Luke and Sod coming along to, to contribute as well. It makes me feel lucky. So I wasn't sure, Chris and Scott, if you wanted to come in there um, before we move on to look, looking back at the um, our memories of that whole journey. No, I think you said it best there. It's like you can look at our friends like that, that, uh, that back you so much and uh, you can hear their, their genuine pride in, in your achievement. So. And I think when you you talk about stature and stuff like that, I think that is certainly a stature as well as how your friends and colleagues look upon you. So I would say that you have got a stature there and it's it's well-deserved praise and pride from them as well. Uh, uh, So I think, you know, you could give yourself a pat on the back. I think it's good for... For when these moments turn up and they, they go well and you get praise, I think sometimes it's hard for, for kind of Scottish people to maybe sit back and actually just say, Do you know what, I deserve that. So I'll say I, I, you did deserve that. <laughs> well, thanks, Scott. You're, you're right, though. It's, it's definitely a Scottish thing. I like it's kind of near. I don't know, John, if you felt the same. I think we might have actually spoken briefly about this because um, you found out about the book, John, before I'd announced anything because you were talking to the folk at Pitch, or you saw it on the website or something, what was it? Yeah, it's, um, Pitch had said upcoming titles, and I was looking because um, I was looking at it for another mate's book, because I knew, I know he's got a book coming out this year, and then I came across yours, and I was like, well, he's kept that quiet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you've, you've never, I mean, in the time I've known you, Andy, you, um, I know you've been quite, um, you know, you let you let myself in terms of you don't want to shout too much out about yourself in terms of um you know self promotion you've got, there's almost a bit of a consciousness there um in that regards um but I think you definitely need to shout about this because you know you've done a great amount of work and the night itself was fantastic you've got great people around you and um I'll just echo what the guy says I mean you should be proud I mean I was proud when it happened to me a year ago but um and you should and I'm proud of you for what you've done this year thanks mate it's, it's, the, the feedback's been great. It, it, and that that sort of thing makes me feel like it was it was uh, all worth it on top of the kind of just reaching a personal target. I I always like to have something to strive for in my life. Like I've signed up for the Edinburgh Half Marathon. I'm not really a runner, 
So like I've got that to focus on in the future where th- this book was kind of similar. It was a long-term ambition, but I like to have something in my life that I can aim towards and, and have as a bit of a project. This was a long-term one, but got there. Yeah, and you'll Alex? certainly, when you go, who's, who was next? I was, have you been into a bookshop and seen your book yet on the shelf? No, no, because I, I'm not sure it's a good feeling <laughs> and how many there are i don't want to walk in and not see it and then i'll just feel a bit deflated so yeah i'm, I'm not sure exactly where it is just got to watch and scott make sure you know that well yeah so he already knows that it's in my water because i published a picture of it on uh, twitter uh, on the monday for, for your publication oh were you were you the silverburn one so yeah so i, I do the kind of social media for silverburn yeah. um I did get the same responses as my Mrs. Hinch event on the, the Saturday because that was like a 200 queue 200 to get into the shop. But what I was going to say, so when you do go into to any of the Waterstones, you do see it. I said this to John. I don't know if John ever took me up on this. But say to one of the, the book sellers about you know, signing the book. Right. That works, so that works two ways in your favour. One, more people will kind of gravitate towards a book that's signed that you do, but you do find that they sign they sell more. Plus, they will also probably or they should do want to take a picture of you with your book and then publish it on their social medias. So right. it is a way of actually getting your, your kind of face and the more importantly yeah. the book's cover out there into social media as well. Right. Um okay. so but I would imagine John, it's a good feeling to go into the shop and seeing it out there in the, the, sh- the bookshelf oh definitely there's been a couple of times i have shared that on twitter you know my pic- picture of my <laughs> own book with um um in, in a waterson store so yeah that's um definitely a good feeling one audio wish i uh, one piece of audio wish i had recorded was josh's question to david marshall um <laughs> <laughs> i'm um uh, i'm sure david's heard a lot worse and seen a lot worse than what he got from josh that night but <laughs> I, I I thought I thought Josh was uh, just going to go around in circles with it. It wasn't it wasn't until it was, I'd say he was talking for at least forty five seconds before he actually got to his point. He was just saying, "David, I love you. You're a legend." In roundabout ways for probably about half a minute before he actually asked the question. <laughs> uh, he's some he's some man. Although I think his question was. Um... <laughs> More printable than uh, Tam Kevin's um, <laughs> questions. Well, <laughs> but, um, yeah, we'll definitely not um, share that on here. <laughs> um, in, in terms of, so we'll we'll look at, go back to our memories. Um, you know, of the tw- year twenty twenty journey. And obviously, it's not going to give away anything in the book. Um, but um, it's just. <laughs> um, I don't know what happens at the end. Yeah, they are. <laughs> we haven't a clue. <laughs> um, we also mentioned there about striking and um, leaving. Now there was it was up in the air as to whether it was the right decision or not. Because although he, t- he failed to qualify for two major tournaments in a row, we did finish that campaign strongly. But off he went anyway. And then there was what was um, I can only be described as a botched um, approach from Michael O'Neill. There was a leak about Water Smith. Um, be- not going to be interviewed for job before it eventually came to McLeish. And McLeish, to be fair to him. Knew he wasn't first choice. Knew he wasn't even second choice. But he was still proud as punch to take that job. But when you look at that process of that three, three, four months between Strack and leaving and McLeish coming back, it was a bit of an embarrassment. Well, yeah, the, the Scottish media didn't really miss with that one, did they? They were 
getting a hard time, the SFA, quite rightly, to be honest, because for it to... I mean, we, I know, we know now um, that it was basically the SFA trying to save on salary while we had no games. That was essentially what the, the wait was um, and about why it took so long for us to actually try and secure Michael O'Neill um, about genuinely two, at least two months after we'd initially kind of given the the eye to him. Uh, I spoke to someone fairly close to Michael O'Neill for the book and, and and he said, yeah, it was an absolute absolute shambles the way the SFA tried to, to get him on board. Um, so I think it's quite right that they took a, a pounding over that. And the, the, the Walter Smith thing, I, I, I spoke to Alan McRae for the week, there's a few wee quotes in him, uh, from him in there. I, didn't, I still don't think I'm much clearer on what happened with Walter Smith. The, like it just kind of it seemed to be on for one second and then off and and I don't know if that was because Walter Smith's family had stepped in or if he'd been fed up with the way that uh, he'd been approached or whatever I really I don't I don't know I don't know if they've got NDAs or something for that but Al McRae didn't really go into too much detail on that and it was yeah to, to kind of echo the the people from O'Neill's camp that I spoke to, it was it was quite embarrassing. Do you think possibly from the Walter Smith side of things, it was the leak that maybe kind of skewed it a wee bit in the sense that he's maybe thought, oh, can he trust who he's getting into bed with? Or in a sense that, you know, he wanted to keep it all secret. Probably didn't want the job. Maybe he was going to just... Um, sound him out and trying to maybe guide him the right way and then suddenly... Before he's even met them, it's it's in the papers, and then that's maybe kind of made them take a step back. Yeah, very possibly. He's a private guy, isn't he? Or was sorry, Walter Smith. So it's yeah, that wouldn't come as any surprise. I do find it interesting looking back at the research and the the chat about Walter Smith Scott Gemmell kind of double act that was was muted. I'm, I have to say, I'm quite glad that that didn't come to fruition. Yeah, because that's the kind of first time that I'd actually seen that when I read it in the book, and I kind of I didn't go, oh, that didn't, I not I don't, I mean, I'm obviously a huge Walter Smith fan, but that wouldn't have sat. I, I just don't like all these kind of when they try and have like a Godfather sort of situation. But like whether it was at Rangers with McCoy's, I mean, it doesn't always kind of work out. I don't. It's not. It, it, it seems good as an idea, but they very rarely work out. So. I, I wouldn't have, no, I wouldn't have enjoyed that. I think, I think that in, that, in, in that situation, as Scott Gemmell, I think it would have been impossible not to feel um, like you were available to make decisions yourself as the as the coach. If it was that sort of thing, I think you'd always feel like you were answering to Walter Smith, regardless of what the dynamic was between them or the arrangement. I would have had a very sort of Puglish and Barnes feel about it when they were at Celtic. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was that, there was there was one or two ways that was going to go. It was either going to be Barnes was working for Douglas and Douglas was making all his decisions, or what actually happened, Douglas just went and played golf. And what Barnes went on with it. And then I thought, so I, I don't I, I mean, like my memories of this was I didn't want Strachan to go. Not so much because I thought Strachan was doing a great job. I kinda thought Strachan was probably done. He'd had his two campaigns. In each campaign, we kind of had a blip somewhere. Then one blip was bigger than another, but he never put a full campaign together that got us somewhere. Despite the fact that 
when he was they were good, were really pretty good. But there was always that one part. So I didn't I, I didn't watch Strachan to go more for the fact that I couldn't think who was going to come in and replace him. There wasn't an obvious candidate. So when the other names started coming out afterwards, my feeling was Walter Smith was probably the best option because it was almost like Walter Smith had unfinished business. Because his first campaign had kind of come in a abrupt end mm. when he jumped ship and went to Rangers to go and save them after the, the Lagrange engines. Yeah. But I mean, the, the whole Michael and Neil thing was it just made us a laughing stock. And then we were chasing shadows. It's all, a, a little reminiscent without the same sort of um, result is when Eddie Howe just strung Celtic along for months and then said he wasn't coming and they'd be scrambling about and end up with Postacoglu. Now that worked out really well. Yeah. Didn't work out. It's quite the same for Scotland with getting McLeish in eventually, but it had the same kind of feel about it. But well, this, I, I, yeah. As you said, it was the other way around to that one. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was Celtic, it was the house thing, and Celtic, this was SFA's thing, and Michael O'Neill. Yeah, it was the SFA that strung, strung Michael O'Neill along. I think it was just an, kind of an arrogant state of affairs, thinking that we could um, just kind of leave O'Neill hanging on the line for a while. Almost, I think with a sense of entitlement that, oh, it's a foregone conclusion here, of course he'll come to Scotland. Scotland's Can't, better than Northern Ireland, and you're yeah. thinking, the, the guy is from Northern Ireland, so we have to put yeah. that in yeah. the context. Well, totally, yeah. I think they forgot and, that. And I think they also didn't realise that Northern Ireland, thanks for, to qualifying for Euro 2016, could stump up a fairly attractive wage mm-hmm. that we were hesitant to do so. Um, and and he, had them, he had getting them to a World Cup in a sense, which I think... He was very close to him. Was that the incident with the handball against? Yes, it was. It never was. Yeah. So I mean, he almost succeeded in his ultimate goal, uh, Michael O'Neill. So, and to be fair, yeah. if if we had queries about that squad, which seemed to be especially the striking department, you you know you look at the first um, quarter of the book, and there's always you know you you. you I like the th- the fact of this book. Every time there's like a game, you 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 take up the team before beforehand before you're talking about it, and you look at some of the players that we had to play with up front, and you know if you were a manager stepping into that from a, a position of success and you've just got a, a bumper wage rise offered to you, I could say definitely see why. And as we all know about the the length of the courtship as well, I could. Definitely see why Michael O'Neill would turn that down. Yeah, the uh, the fact that he lives in Edinburgh, I think, was massively overestimated as a selling point. I think there were there were a lot of things that probably came before that in the priority list. But I think a lot of people thought, ah, he lives in Edinburgh. He's not far from the Orium. He can keep an eye on the players up here in Bright Airport nearby. No, no bother. He'll come to Scotland, and then we were hit with the kind of. Uh, what would you call it when it's an ultimatum? An ultimatum, like hurry up or this is this is finished. And, and we still dallied and uh, and he walked away. Yeah, I think, um, yeah. I'll be honest, I was wanting Michael O'Neill. Um, when I saw Northern Ireland didn't qualify for the World Cup, I wanted us to go and get Michael O'Neill there and then. Um, and I know, I think his mum passed away, um, so they held back another. Um, but that would have only been like a couple of weeks they would have had to um, uh, hold off. And I remember Michael O'Neill actually gave an interview to Football Focus around about Christmas time. And he sounded, without saying the words, but he sounded really peed off that Scotland hadn't been back. Because um, he mentioned that Scotland hadn't been back in touch since our initial discussion. And he sounded quite peed off. And that's what made me think um, he didn't feel wanted enough. Whereas Northern Ireland were straight in saying six years, massive pay rise. And that's what it, it came to. Because, you know, I think he could have come 
had we uh, made him feel wanted because he'd done everything he could have with Northern Ireland. And he still, ne- I mean, he actually nearly they took him to the brink of these years because he had them in the playoff and he was supposed to oversee them despite um, taking the Stoke job. But because of obviously what happened, he had to um, walk away and left them with Ian Barraclough. So we'll never know what might have happened had Michael O'Neill been the manager. But um, I suppose in a roundabout sort of way it worked out, but for a while it didn't look as though it was because um, it was difficult under McLeish for a while. But through, he did the most important thing, which was get us through that Nations League group through um, by hook or by group. But no, and not under great crowds. I mean, um, I think there was only around about 20,000 for that at that Israel game that clinched it as well, the 3-2 yeah. game with James Forrest. Yeah, I mean, when you look at that, I mean, that was that was a 3-2 win for Scotland against Israel. And we had another 3-2 against Scotland and Israel a couple of years later, and it was packed. So that's the difference we've had since then and now. Uh, but yeah, that was that was the biggest one at 20,000. The other ones, like, there was, there was 17,000 against Albania, uh, and because it was a three-team group, that was all there was. Um, that, I mean, this was the first Nations League. Um, this so this was UEFA's new baby, and the kind of the, the, the playoff was a, da- like a dangling carrot to get people interested in it. But I don't remember really being that interested in the tournament at the time. But we kept I kept making jokes on this podcast. It would have been called the C section. <laughs> no, 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 look at us. I know what's up. We're up there, up in the league now. All good. No more jokes about <laughs> pregnancy. <laughs> but I, it was. It, I mean, I've. They've rejigged it a couple of times, so obviously UEFA still played with the format since this one. So th- this was uh, three teams, Scotland won the section and ended up playing Israel again because they were one of the other teams that got through the playoff. Kind of, they were one of the best runners up. Uh, so I, uh, this this was the start of us playing Israel a lot. So it was an awful lot back then. But as you, t- I mean, and Scott mentioned it earlier, one of the issues that Scotland had at this point was strikers. If you look at this campaign and the Euro qualifying campaign that followed it, there's just no goals from strikers, <laughs> really, anywhere. I mean, McGinn was your top scorer in, 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 the, in the actual 2020 qualifying, and everybody else had like one goal. It's, it's, it's definitely fair to say that at that point, we did have hopes for McBurney because he hadn't, he hadn't really been included. I think it was Costa Rica, I think he came off the bench for his debut, maybe, and he, he hit the post against. One of the South Med- or Mexico or Peru, and from then on, we never really saw much encouragement from McBurney. But at that point, I think he might have just been about to move to Sheffield United, or he'd had his season at Swansea where he scored at least twenty goals in the Championship. You know, we've seen this movie before with McCormick and Rhodes and Chris Martin, and we thought, right, here we go, problem solved, and it just didn't really materialise that way. He was the one that we all thought. Okay, um, if this guy can keep his consistency down south, then then we might have uh, some goals in the team. Instead, McLeish had to go back and get Stephen Fletcher, who was brilliant. And I think one of the guys touched on that. I think John was at Luke. I think it might have been Luke at the launch night touched on how effective saying. Stephen Fletcher was uh, against Israel. And it was just those two games Fletcher came back for. He, he only he came on for ten minutes against Slovenia in Strachan's last game, then wasn't involved. And then McLeish managed to go and get him back because he'd had terrible knee trouble. Fletcher, he talks about that in the book, about that he'd play a first half, he'd then get back off his arse at halftime to go back out for the second half and he'd barely be able to walk. Um, he had a problem with one of his tendons and his knees, but he kept playing. And that's why he stopped playing for Scotland. But he came back for those two games, he helped us get the job done and then thought, I, I can't give any more, I-, I, have to- I have to stop this, I need a rest. 
Yeah, the thing is with, with Fletcher, and you kind of you compare him to a kind of world-renowned striker. Uh, I, would, I won't kind of spoil it. People can have to read the book. I'm not going to spoil everything. But the, the biggest thing for Fletcher, I think, was getting more from Forrest and Fraser. When you played Fletcher, you that was when I think Forrest was probably at his best for Scotland. And that's because they had a striker who could actually link up and get a hold up as well. And McBurnley never really showed that in a Scotland just shut. He, he just he couldn't work himself out positionally. I feel sorry for him but for the fact that I think international football is hard and it's hard to kind of you know, some of our better strikers have taken twenty games before they've actually got used to international football. Um, whereas with Dyke seem to take to it quite quickly, yeah. you know, within the first couple of games. Um, I think that was Fletcher's biggest strength was actually getting more from the other creative players around him. Yeah, there, there was definitely a kind of good timing with this campaign because, as you say, Fletcher came in for these two games and it made all the difference. We also, that, that we, 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 James Forrest was always criticised for never really stepping up and playing for Scotland until this campaign, and it's specifically the two games in November 2018. I mean, this was a James Forrest that was now flying at Celtic. He was going, oh, it was, he, was, he was playing his best football in the bread and Rodgers, and he came into this, and he just, that was the first time we'd actually seen him carry it into a Scotland jersey. We scored yeah. 10 goals in this campaign. Five of them came for him in those two last games, including the hat-trick against Israel, which meant we won the group. But the thing is, the, the, the kind of craziness is from, you know, the time span of the book, it is these kind of odd incidents, incidences where players really picked up for maybe one or two games. They, they didn't play the full quota of games. I'm thinking Al McGregor's save against Israel, and then that was it. He kind of hung up his gloves after that for Scotland. Gallagher coming into the team when he did, Declan Gallagher coming into the team when he did, and really having a, yeah. a, a, a couple of great games in the, in the kind of time of need. Um, and as you say, they're forest those two games. They just needed something, and we got it from various players that we probably wouldn't have thought of and didn't do it on a consistent basis, un, uh, unlike maybe Christie and McGinn, but we really needed them for those instances, and they were there. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd probably drop into that equation as well, unfortunately, Ryan Fraser, because he's never really been a consistent player for us. He's shown it in flashes, scored uh, a couple of goals, uh, would that have been at the start? I've gone my years. He scored the goal against Albania. Um, the first goal in that game was very good finish. When, when did he score against the the Pharaohs? That was uh, in the World Cup qualifying campaign. So that would have been because uh, he scored away to Israel as well. He had a wee burst yeah. where he scored something like three goals in five games or whatever it was, which was pretty good. But he he and Dykes had something going uh, up front together when Clark changed the the formation. And we didn't have Adams at that point. Dykes had come onto the scene with a bang, scored against Slovakia and Czech Republic very quickly in his Scotland caps. And he was playing up front with Fraser. And he scored against Czech Republic Fraser. And the game before that was the one that Dykes scored against Slovakia too. Relatively comfortable 1-0s, especially against Slovakia. Um, and at that point, we thought, right, OK, well, there's our front two for Serbia. Then Fraser goes and injures his hamstring and all of a sudden we're thinking, fuck, what are we going to do? Now Lyndon Dykes up front himself and he goes and produces, I said this at the launch night in my opinion, the best centre-forward display I've seen from a Scotland striker in my entire life. 
It's interesting we're talking about timings and um, you know strikers and form and stuff. Um, but I mean, at the end of that World Cup, um, we saw that um, US twenty twenty qualifying, and we knew that we were going to be playing Israel in the March. Um, believe it or not, the Scotland striker that was in form at that time was Lee Griffiths because he was back in the Celtic team and scoring goals from January twenty twenty up until the pandemic. And but also at that same point. Scott McKenna was injured, um, who was first choice centre back at the time. John McGinn was injured. Kieran Tierney still wasn't fit. It's you just wonder how would we have got on had those games um, been played in the March compared. But of course, it got Steve Clark um, to buy a bit of time. He then decided about um, going trying this um, back three. Um, you know, with Tierney in the team, there was eyebrows raised. But you just wonder what might have happened in March, and it's, it's ironic that. <laughs> Um, Chris and I did a podcast um, after the Kazakhstan game that says roll on March um, 2020 because we had a charity <laughs> game um, planned um, at that point. How that aged badly. Um, but, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> how things change because it was fair, supposed to be a sellout. But to be fair, for Scotland, we deserve that wee bit of luck. And I know lockdown and COVID's probably not luck uh, for, for, for most people, but you know to get that wee bit of time and everything else... We've probably had what, you know, twenty years of hot to get to that wee tiny bit of luck. Um, so it's uh, it, 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 sometimes you just have to just admit that luck's sometimes the biggest thing and the best thing in football. Look, it's it's true, right? We did get a bit of luck there because I don't think we would have beaten Serbia in the immediacy of that last campaign with McGinn. Tierney, McTominay as well, injured, not really having a, a striker apart from Griff. So I think we would have we would have struggled. But then before the semi against Israel, three of our most important players had to self-isolate. So we, we had to deal with, with shit getting flung in our face as well as the stroke of luck of getting to play it once Clark had a bit more time to try and formalise whatever was going on in his head um, before the before the playoffs and, and those two Nations League games I think proved critical the one at home to Israel and away to the Czechs to give us a wee chance um, so that we weren't going into that playoff semi completely cold and one of the biggest things as well was actually Serbia getting through as well because yeah. I think if Norway had got through we seemed to really just capitulate against world class mm. stars and I think yeah Haaland would have Haaland just ripped his apartment you know, I remember Bale doing it for Wales against us. So I think to get Serbia, who still, obviously, especially in Belgrade, is going to be an extremely tough ask. Uh, Mitrovic is a very good international forward. But I, I still think that, you know, I fancy this more against Serbia than I did against Norway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that even the the, the pandemic itself might have played into our hands because as much as we didn't have the Hamden roar behind us for the Israel game, we still get thrown penalties. You're then going to Red Star Stadium in Belgrade. You, can you imagine the atmosphere if that had been full? How different would that have been for us yeah. to go in and play? And then we, the game the game we played was one of the best we've ever played. Yeah. I, I don't know about you guys here. I actually hold this and have held this opinion for a while. I think it is Worse to take a to be in a penalty shootout in front of your home crowd. I think the the dread of missing, I think, would quite easily control your body over the the anticipation of, of scoring. I've, I see even cup finals as well. I think it would be better to take 
a penalty at the away end rather than look behind the net you're about to shoot at and see your, all your home fans standing like that with their with their hands over their mouths absolutely wetting themselves with nerves and see if McGinn, McTominay, McGregor, whoever else stood up at Hamden when we're that close to a playoff final. One kick of a ball separating them from putting it in the back of the net. The players did show great mental strength to get through it. I, I'm not sure if the 48,000 or however many it would have been Scotland fans breathing down their neck would have would have been a help or a hindrance at that point, I have to say. Well, let's well, take us all the way back to the kind of Gordon Strachan era where he talked about mentality. There was times where I think Hamden was a kind of hindrance almost because the expectation was there, the kind of pressure was there, the players did seem to sometimes just crumble under that pressure. So I think you're, you're, you're probably right in terms of that penalty shootout. It could have been... I, mean, I think in most cases I would probably prefer to take a penalty shootout in front of all fans... But then I've never had to do it, so I, I can't guarantee <laughs> that. Um, but you know, I, I think certainly in this kind of Scotland era, it probably was better that there was no fans there, and you know, it, the second one was away from home. I don't know. The fans are that far away um, behind the east stand. <laughs> um, <laughs> 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 might have been okay. I mean, I mean, that's a good point. Had it gone to Perthshire, um, you know, with fans, you don't know how it would have went. But then. With a full Hamden playing Israel, it might have helped us get over the line. But yeah, I do take Chris's point completely that um, away from home in Serbia it would have been much more of a struggle than it... Um, I mean, it still ended up being a struggle, but that was their own downfall from switching off in the 89th minute <laughs> in that game. Um, and when that goal... When uh, Lukijovic heads that ball into the back of net, the, the first words that came into my um, mind was... Here we go again, glorious another chapter of glorious failure. I, I, you know that phrase that really does our head in the Scotland fans, and and we're obviously going to come onto the Marshall um, save, but I think the best save that he's made in his career, um, other than the pelt, was that save an extra time from I think it was good. I hit the shot. That is a world class stop because that's come through a lot of bodies. He's saw it very late and he's just flung himself and got that tip round. It's an unbelievable save and that proved crucial. It's easily his best save in this match, that's for sure. I mean, he's obviously remembered more for the penalty save, but that save in extra time was absolutely vital and it was top-notch because he got just enough on it to put it past the post. But I wouldn't say it was his best save in his career because I was in the new camp. I was going to say, <laughs> the new Barcelona was going to come up there. That said it at the launch night, John, that was the moment that switched my mentality for the rest of the evening a wee bit. When when Serbia equalised, I had lost all faith. I thought they're just going to have too much for us in extra time. We don't have the uh, the minerals really to stand up to this. We've taken off a couple of our best players, and no offence, replaced them with ones who aren't as good. And I'm not sure really how we, we deal with probably what's going to come at us here. When that was saved, which well, I can't remember what part of extra time it would have been in, if you can remember... Um, but when that was saved, I don't think I certainly don't think it was in like the first couple of minutes of extra time anyway. Like I remember, so I think I can't remember exactly. It was still the first half of extra time. Still the first half. I remember turning to my dad because it was just the two of us uh, during lockdown there, and and saying, and but, I mean, actually, we didn't say it. We just kind of shared a look 
that was kind of the sort of right maybe maybe we can get through this like right don't worry it's still no no eh, sorry it's still one one so that I think was a pivotal moment for the players as well in the pitch knowing that they were being resolute Serbia were chucking everything at us at that point and that was a wonder wonder strike from the, uh, the midfielder great save from Marsh I think it was absolutely critical in the game and the thing as well we'd taken off um, three of our best players and probably um, going to be penalty takers Lyndon Dykes although if we've seen his penalties recently probably wouldn't have been a good idea um, yeah. John McGinn and Ryan Christie um, and they're all off the park by this point and you know, I forgot Callum Patterson actually came on in that game as well, but until you mentioned it, um, you know, a bit of a forgotten man, but obviously Griffiths came on, and then it goes to penalties. I'll be honest, the first two penalties, Scotland players, I watched them um, normally, but then when Scott McTominay um, stepped up and known that he was partly at fault for the equaliser, I put my head in my hands, I thought, I just feared what was going to happen. Then McBurnett was the same, and then when Kenny Mc- I did the same with Kenny McLean, but once Kenny McLean scored, I then had a feeling, Marshall's saving this. Um, and yeah um, it's a moment that we'll all um, remember we're, we're all pretty much in a similar place we're all in the house apart from maybe one or two who went to a pub until they chucked out everyone for 10 o'clock because of Covid laws <laughs> um, I think there was one I, I remember one pub in Aberdeen was actually um, had their licence taken off and for keeping themselves open when they shouldn't have been um, it was just an unbelievable night But um, I just remember thinking what's the big fuss with England the penalties there's there's no fuss at all it's like just just score all five just score them yeah just score them and let your keeper save one I mean I don't understand what the big issue is you just seem to just go alright okay it's penalties we'll we'll just squish you this that's fine it's crazy I I might be one of the few Scots that's actually glad it went to penalties because it meant I could watch it I wasn't in that night I I, I didn't see like the the 90 minutes I was driving home listening to the radio for extra during the extra time oh, wow. before it finished so I was able to be at home and watch the penalty shootout and so I I'm eventually it was the same as everybody else so I was home. home and I was with my nephew and he was born in 98 really big big Celtic fan um, but he'd never seen Billy Candy never really seen Scotland doing well and qualifying for a tournament and all the rest of it and to see him Jumping up and down, hug, we were hugging each other and everything else to actually live that moment to, to, to show this is what it's like to support Scotland. This is what it should be like to support Scotland. You should get memories like this. You should get feelings like this. You should be thinking how proud you are of your nation. Um, and for that to carry on, you know, Scotland and, and the, the Denmark games after, uh, sorry, the Israel and Denmark games afterwards and the, the next qualifying and things like that. You should have moments like that. And for so many fans, you know, they, they had certain moments, obviously, the, fra- the two games against France and stuff like that, but to actually qualify and feel that pride um, was just amazing. Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, some of the videos that went viral um, afterwards, you know, I shared a couple of them on Twitter earlier. Um, the the result, obviously, the Scotland national team um, just put two fingers up to the um, social distancing rules and did the conga for David Marshall and obviously the yes, I can boogie. Um, it made um, surely though, the, the, famous. Surely the, the, the social distancing rules would have been all right because it was Serbia. And Novak would have made sure that that was all right. <laughs> they, they were in a wee bubble anyway. <laughs> I thought Bob was going to be a wee bit more sort of isolated that way. Yeah, yeah I, um, 
we, we should probably earn no shooters if we don't mention them. But uh, there was one man who came in for this tournament, specifically. Um, and thanks to him, yes, sir, we can boogie became legendary. Handy mm-hmm. today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing that Bakra and um, Wigfield then became synonymous on Tartanami playlists all around the country after that. Aye. And that, that was his, was that his last involvement, Andy Conte? He played against Slovakia a couple of days later when the um, the first team were hung over. That's the other one thing about this tournament, is we were doing this in the middle of another campaign. <laughs> yeah, still had two more games to go as well, yeah. It's funny, uh, so, did Sod not say something like that at the launch night where everybody was uh, cracking out the, the beers in the hotel, the champagne going mental and the he was joking that Clark came in and said, right, boys, Slovakia in three days, we go again. <laughs> I, th- I think only three of them played um, the next game, and I'm pretty sure Tierney, Tierney was one, I know that much, and I can't remember who the other two were. I'm sure it might have been Ryan Christie. I know the rest of them pretty much got a, a rest after that. In fact, McGinn might have played if he was subbed early, but I can't remember to, without looking at the team lines, to be fair. But I know Coinstein played, obviously. In that game, that was his last cap, the last of his three. We kind of binned that uh, campaign in the, the Nations League in 2021, and I think nobody is that bothered about it because of the circumstances. Yeah. Uh, and we just, um, I mean, we went out and proved that we were we were the best team when we're in the A League now, so it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> Made up for a lot of time with the playoff in the, the bank. Um, so I did ask people for um, um, their memories of um, you know that whole journey. So. Um, Scott McGill, who we just mentioned, who became um, overnight sensation and joined our podcast later on as well. Um, so he said his least favourite memory um, of that qualifying campaign must be watching the game away to Cyprus. Um, and the reason for that was that his dad, um, having his dad went to a gig the night before, his choice, and took it too far. And he says he spent his head in a basin all day, but managed to lift his head out to enough times to see the goals. <laughs> 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 uh, did he did he see did he see Cyprus's opening goal that never was? I can't remember that. I remember the strike they got that was an absolute peach from Ephraim. Boy, I'm sure he used to play for Rangers at one point. Aye, Ephraim scored after about ten minutes or so off the bar, and and the ref never saw it. Oh, was it one? Was it bounced over the line? One yeah, of those? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that they didn't have the um, the linesman that helped England six to six. Yeah, so um, Glenn Schroeder um, of Rent Lassie says, being in FaceTime with my friends since we couldn't um, be together due to lockdown, it's been safe, then getting shouted at for cheering loudly and waking up the wee one. I've got a similar story because my tale was, um, obviously I'm trying to be, um, I'm conscious of the fact I've got my two kids sleeping up the stairs so I'm jumping in the room but not shouting yes, I'm just like Almost miming it, yeah, or whispering it, and then my wife texts me to say, "Has there been an earthquake off Scotland qualified?" <laughs> <laughs> did you did you see did you see a thing kind of on this note actually? Uh, Sky Sports Germany or some German football content uh, creator did this thing the other day for Munch and Gladbach against Bayern Munich. So you know, if I was to say to you, picture that kind of soccer game where they would have like a group of eight or ten fans of a certain club on uh, for the show so it's kind of like that and it, but it was say a, a group of 10 Munich fans and a group of 10 Gladbach fans and they were being filmed and they had to watch the game in absolute silence 
and they had like some sort of like forfeit or bet on it. Like if any one of them made a noise, uh, then then the, the team lost and something else happened from that. If Gladbach won the game three two and there was a red card and everything, and when the full time whistle goes when it's confirmed that Gladbach have won, the eight Gladbach fans or whatever jumping around, falling over each other, but in absolute silence, <laughs> no noise is hilarious. See if you, if you you'll be able to find it on Twitter or YouTube or something if you if you Google Gladbach Munich silent fans or whatever. But it, it's it's quite a good idea. I've never seen anything like that before. Quite funny. Uh, a couple of other ones that I'll read out that apply to I did this from one to not from the uh, podcast one. Um, so, North Runner said, um, as a foot soldier who was at France in 98 and suffered to de- decades, um, of course I was delighted, but also disappointed that I wasn't um, at many of the games with friends that had travelled to so many games. And what a per- part of it would have been in Belgrade. Um, Callum Brown says, um, convince my mates that this was finally it. <laughs> and um, yeah. Some pals were fans, but not as keen to watch that in Serbia in our flat during lockdown and see everyone's passion. Never forget it, tears with Christy. Um, and you and Ankin says, uh, well, he, he remembers being San Marino and coming away from that game, having a negative goal difference after games with Kazakhstan and San Marino. <laughs> Genuinely at rock bottom. Um, wow. but, and yeah, that's amazing to think that we start, um, that that Euro 2020 journey partly started with with that and then we end up qualifying. Unbelievable. And I mean, that was the thing that changed the manager, though. I mean, the, the, when we lost to Kazakhstan and the opening game, that was pretty much your qualifying campaign done. I mean, you yeah. Uh, I mean, as you say, we, we, we did beat Samarino in the next game, but it was by less than we just lost. So I never thought about it, I get a goal difference. So, Andy, see, there's a few quotes from some of the players that you, you met up with when we came to McLeish leaving and they were kind of nice but they weren't like they didn't come across as being like gutted that, that this had happened it, it wasn't I don't think it was a total shock by by reading their words in, in your book is that the kind of vibe that you got when you were interviewing them yes Naismith in particular which I was quite surprised at because he was delighted in McLeish got reappointed because they had a prior relationship and they knew each other. McNeese was only very young when he started getting call-ups to the Scotland squad um, before McLeish went to Birmingham. Uh, but they knew each other. McLeish was well aware of what Naismith was all about. So when McLeish came back, Naismith knew, right, okay, I can prolong my Scotland career a wee bit here. I'm, yes, I've had injury trouble, but I'm only 31 um, there's there's light at the end of the tunnel here for me getting to fifty caps, which was his ultimate his target. Uh, he he always wanted to get to uh, fifty caps and ten goals, which I think he achieved actually. Uh, I'm sure he got ten goals. So yes, I was look. He didn't tear into McLeish. None of the players did at all. They all said it was a shame the way it panned out, but we felt it necessary. Kind of they all kind of carried the same opinion. Um, Christie was another one I think along said something along the lines of something didn't feel quite right and we needed a fresh start all that sort of stuff but they all do caveat it with McLeish being a very nice guy someone they enjoy being around uh, O'Donnell echoed that point at the launch night on Sunday because it was McLeish who gave him his, his big go in, in the Scotland national team 
Kenny McLean didn't have many caps at that point, scored in San Marino. Um, McLean actually did say that goal. He was like, "It, it that's his only goal to Scott for Scotland today," and he doesn't really remember it that fondly because of the circumstances that he scored it in. It's when when he thinks back about his first goal for Scotland, it's it's kind of it was under a cloud, wasn't it? The 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 audience, the audience, goodness me, the the fans were kind of on top of the team at that point. Certainly not in support of the manager or the organisation, and the players were well aware of it. And and it was hard to detract one from the other when when McLean scored his opening goal. He said so. Um, yeah, they they all were full of praise for Alex McLeish the person, but not one of them that I interviewed said. He should have stayed. Easy to say with hindsight because the next manager then took us to the Euros. But at the time, they they, they all said at the time we felt it was the right decision. Because I always got the kind of vibes the second time round for Alex McLeish. And as I said, you know, he's praised <laughs> in the book and he's, I, I praise him as well for the certain things that he'd done, you know, the, the players that he brought in and things like that. But I always get the, the vibe. And I didn't, I, you know, I, I was happy enough with the point when it happened. But it was kind of when you started looking at the team and you started even looking at press conferences, you could tell he'd been out of the game for a couple of years. You could tell that he hadn't been in a kind of full-time job for a kind of a, a, a decent spell at a team for a while. You, that's what the kind of vibes that I got from it was that he'd been almost kind of starved of that kind of football mentality for a wee bit too long that maybe football progressed a wee bit more that he'd been able to catch up on. He he would take you and I to task on that. I mean, so he has, I mean, he's a treble winner with Rangers back in the day, took Scotland to within an inch of Euro 2008. I mean, he's got these things on his CV and he's he, he's a qualified um, football manager. I I do think that there is a there is something to be said on on that though. His recent club experiences were not good, and couple that with the fact that it was known by absolutely everyone that he wasn't even the second choice meant that he was fighting not a losing battle, but he was an uphill one anyway from the start. In the eyes of, I bet you, and none of them admitted this, but I bet you some of the players, um, many of the fans, and many members of the media as well, um. And I, I do touch on this in the book because there are people that have inferred it publicly in the past. McLeish um, has things tied to him that, that make life harder for him as a Scotland manager as well. The the whole EBT situation, he was a vocal supporter of the No campaign in, in 2014. These things matter um, when you're a Scotland manager to some people, um, which probably made life harder um, for him when it, when it came to... Um, his second appointment and made it easier for the SFA to be beaten with with these sort of sticks. So it was the, the perfect storm, really, that I think that came to a head in, in Kazakhstan. And, and and after that, I don't think there was any any coming back when you take into account everything else that I've just said as well. No, no, I get surprised when he went, though. I mean, like, he obviously took the San Marino game and then he left. But that then meant that when Steve Clark was coming in, he had a hell of a schedule ahead of him. He got the Cyprus game to start off with, but then it was four in a row against Pilgrim in Russia. 
Yeah. The, 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 the way that campaign was set up was set up for us to fail. Because could, of the way the game could never fit. could never have sacked him after Israel pissed him. No, I think that's the thing. Like, the, the Kazakhstan game was. We I don't think we were in the Kazakhstan game with much confidence to start with, and then the three 0 just completely destroyed anything that was left. And I'm kind of I'm kind of glad that he got to go out and win at least, given yeah. how the, the the Nations League um, had went. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, the, the, Steve Cartland had a baptism of fire. Getting the the Cyprus game and then four in a row against the, the, yeah. the I mean that was two teams that ran away with that group because Belgium won all ten games. The only two that Russia lost were to Belgium. Mm-hmm. We actually ended up having a decent record in this group because mm-hmm. if you take into account we lost Kazakhstan game, we lost to the top two and won the rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But that Kazakhstan game aside, all the results went as expected. Yeah, that's not that's that's, that's not going to get you to a major tournament. It's as you need you need to pull a result from the hat somewhere, uh, like we did um, a couple of times with Austria away uh, when we got to uh, the, the playoffs and we got to the ho- the the home playoff second place and that sort of stuff. So you, you need to pull results results out like that. Um, and I don't think we were the sort of team that would be able to do it under McLeish. To be honest, we were quite fragile and still were when Clark came in, as as we've seen with. Uh, the results against Belgium and Russia. I think on, on the timing of sacking him, there was a, about a month or so in between the San Marino game and McLeish leaving, I think. And I tried to get a word with uh, Maxwell for the for the book and didn't get it. But I wonder if at that point that was them working on Clark so that they knew when we can we can pull the trigger on McLeish's contract. And we know that we we have our man ready to come in and avoid a similar scenario than what we had to endure uh, when Strachan left. Yeah, and um, Steve Clark came in, and um, we got over those first few games, and the rest is history. So, um, before we wrap up, I do have a little surprise for you. This is not in the schedule. I've got a wee quiz for you, you, you <laughs> know, um, and um, but it's going to be Scott and Chris as a team, um, and <laughs> against Andy. <laughs> oh no! So basically, there's um there's four questions plus a special fifth question. So you, um, Scott and Chris decide who's answering questions one and three and two and four. And Andy, you've just got your own. So, um, who's taking the first question, Scott and Chris? Because I'm going to ask you first. On you go, Scott. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. So. Right, Scott. So, um, Scotland's Nations League campaign began with victory over Albania at Hamden. Um, an own goal gave us the lead, but who scored the vital second goal? So, Albania. How much did that went there? I don't know why there's just pick, pick all fire, though, Chris. Oh, I've just got Roberts in my head, but that was Steve Clark's first game, so I'm not. So can you can that. you not answer this, Chris? I don't know, can I? You can send it WhatsApp, Chris. And I, t- I tell you what, um, <laughs> we'll, give, we'll give you if you want to pass it to Chris, you can get I half can a point it, rather than yeah, one yeah, point. Right, okay, I'll pass. Oh, we're doing half a point there because I got another. I'll pass. Oh, even Ishmael was another one. That's right. Yeah, I read about that today as well. <laughs> I was I, I was looking up earlier on to see who like how we'd started the campaign and who was actually on the team and I uh, Nesbeth getting that goal stuck it. 
Uh, Andy, your first question. Who played left-back for Scotland in Kazakhstan? Shinny. Well done. I had a feeling you'd know that. Well, you should do. It's your book. On that, that was the, the coaching staff took a hammering for playing no holding midfielders in Kazakhstan. And it was meant to be Shinny until Robertson got that abscess in his mouth and Shinny had to yeah. get deployed at left-back instead. Yeah, because his Scotland career sadly ended pretty much after that game, which is a shame because yeah. he could have done a, a job in the squad as a home midfielder, but yeah. it's worked out. Um, so, Chris, um, how many goals did we concede over 10 Euro qualifying campaign matches? Oh, jeez, oh. Don't come to me, Chris. <laughs> Stunned silences, Chris. And is this, the, qualif- is this the, the qualifiers with Belgium but, and Russia? Yes, it's that one. It's not the Nations it's, League ones. Uh, can I text? Can I, I'm going to text you, man. I know that I'm not getting a point here, but John, I'm going to text you, man, so just so that yeah. if I'm right, then why don't you just yeah, and they just put it in the comments. <laughs> 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 We get spanked a few times off the big teams. Aye, I'm, I'm trying to remember where, where the fours came in. Nineteen, correct. Oh yes, oh. <laughs> that was a good the, other point, the, the other point I was going to make was wait the we we saw right in the last game against Kazakhstan the resiliency that Steve Clark was already bringing in because we went behind in that game. Yeah, aye. Oh, good can I, yeah. Can I Andy was wrong. His text he said eighteen. I'm only kidding. Why? Can we like can we, can we, can Chris take all the answers? Because I think Chris is going to do this for us. So can I <laughs> bow out and it'll be a aye. proper Scotland penalty shootout. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andy, your second question. So, and uh, Ollie Burke scored the winner um, against Cyprus. What club was he on loan to at the time? Wow. Wow. Uh, there's no stealing by the way <laughs> Celtic correct more, more clubs than Tiger Woods <laughs> Aye. he's the rich version of Tony Watt was that at the end of the season and he just finished with Celtic mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I don't think he played many games at the end because he played under Brendan Rodgers but Neil Lennon didn't fancy him that was his tap-in, wasn't it? That, that was his first goal, wasn't it? Was that first goal? Was, was his only goal? Only one, yeah. Yep. Um, so, Scott, this will be yours. Um, oh, give it to Chris. How many... Well, if you give it to Chris, it's half a point. How many um, Euro 2020 qualifiers did Guillaume Tierney play in? Oh, not a lot. I'm trying to remember the actually... So say that again. Sorry, repeat. The How many Euro qualifiers did Kieran Tierney play? In? So so again, not the Nations League. This is the yeah. Euro twenty twenty qualifiers. Right. Clark came in. He missed a fair chunk of the first couple of games with Clark. Because it was. A hamstring problem I had was it, it was because I, I don't think he played for Clark until he joined Arsenal, am I right? He's joined Arsenal, or uh, aye, he aye, just so joined ju- Arsenal. Just aye. joined Arsenal, didn't he? It wasn't 
The answer is zero. Oh, ah, I was going to say zero. Yeah. Instinct. I was thinking zero. But I thought I must have played one, but then I don't know why I answered two, but all right. <laughs> so Andy, you're one. Um, so Charlie Mulgrew um, played the first five games um, under Steve Clark. He had three different centre back partners. Um, who were they? <laughs> Andy, you're on mute. You can't. <laughs> There we go. Mikey Devlin. Correct. That's when I thought you might have struggled with This is what we're up against. I'm just going to think out loud, okay, so these aren't actual answers. Okay. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head if Mulgrew played in San Marino because McKenna and Bates played in Kazakhstan. But the games he played were against Cyprus and the two Belgium-Russia matches, or the four Belgium-Russia matches. Oh, right. McKenna. Is the first five um, thingy, um, Steve Clark games? Yeah. McKenna. He played, McKenna played yeah. against Belgium. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Hmm. What games again? Cyprus Russia. and... Cyprus, the two against Russia and the two against Belgium. I think the one that I'm struggling to get would have been the Cyprus game. Well, you actually got the Cyprus game because McKenna played in that one. Oh, did he? Yeah. Right, okay. He played oh. in the June ones. Devlin played in October ones, so you're missing the September one. Uh, oh, uh, Gallica. Nope. It was Lee Cooper. Oh, God. Oh, so you had to guess Gallagher as well. <laughs> nah, he was Cyprus away. Ah, that was his right. debut for Scotland. Um, Chris, on to you. So, in that penalty shout against Israel, who scored the fourth penalty? The fourth penalty? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if Andy even knows this. Yeah, fourth penalty against Israel. I know that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, wasn't he McLean? He got the first. McGregor was too early. McGregor went first. You know this, Scott. Mm, no, I don't think so. I could, I could, I could have a guess because I think this person did step up and take one, but I just don't know what order, and I could be totally wrong. I think that this is the. No, actually. He got off the bench, I'm sure, against either Israel or Slovakia after the Serbia game, but I don't think he's been in a squad since this time frame. Huh. I thought it was, Chris, so don't come to me, son. Uh, 
For half a point, I'm willing to give you the club he was with at the time. <laughs> Probably no help. <laughs> no, there. Let me think about it now. If he hasn't played since then, let me just have a quick think. Strong chance he will play again. Mm-hmm. Strong chance he'll oh, play again. Shanklin. Andy, that was a nice gift that you gave That was a nice gift. Is that the right answer? Hi, that is the right answer. How I couldn't couldn't, uh, withstand the pain on Chris's face there. I had to just put him out of his misery. (laughs) And probably because you know you're going to win this anyway. Um, That was like an Andy Robertson cross, that. Just a wee tackle. Right, so Andy, your fourth question. There were, of course, no fans in Belgrade for the playoff final. But what is the official capacity of the Stadio Rico Matic? I will accept 2,000 either side. Oh, I don't know. Uh, 53,000. Well, you're within range of the point because um, oh. the answer is 51,755. Nice. Had you said 55, I would have said no. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so um, the final question, um, inspired by Mr. Barge and um, his quizzes. So it's called Complete the Lineup, but I'm going to do it differently. Um, so, Scott and Chris, your Complete the Lineup is going to be um, Serbia versus Scotland. Andy, yours is going to be the first game of the unbeaten run, which was Scotland versus San Marino. I'm going to take out certain players who played in both games. So, Scott McTominay um, played in both games. Andy Robertson played both games. So did John McGinn, Cal McGregor, and Ryan Christie. So you've each got six players to complete the lineup. Not including subs. This is the starting lineups. And that was the Scotland Serbia. Yours is Scotland Serbia. Andy's is um, Scotland San Marino. So we've got Marshall and Gold, Chris. That right? Yep, David Marshall's right. (laughs) That's an easy one. I think. I think my. Are we doing it in turn so you guys go first? Yeah, and then you, you go, go, you go next time. Right, my keeper was McLaughlin. Correct. So what we think of right back. Who did who did we take out? So McTominay, right? Robertson, McGinn, McGregor, and Christie played in both those games, so they would get taken out. The Dykes up front. Correct. Yeah, because he came off, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the starting lineup of Whitney anyway. Andy, who's your next picking? I think my right back is Palmer. Correct. That's good because that means that Earl's must have been O'Donnell. O'Donnell. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy, who's your third one? Devlin. Yep, his second and last cap for Scotland. He's been injured ever since. <laughs> are we, so we allowed to have a wee conversation about us before we actually name? If you want, yeah. Officially, you are supposed to be a team. Oh. Yeah. So, it was, I'm sure was that not one of the ones that Gallagher played in at the back? Need, need to tell me when it's your answer. Yeah. I go right. I think that sounds right. Right. It's good, and it's right. Andy, your fourth one? Stuart Finlay. Yep. What's his own man? <laughs> <laughs> one cat wonder, one goal. 
Um, this this was back in the so there was what twenty thousand in that game, um, and this was in days when people on the podcast who shall remain nameless um, were slagging me off for going to Scotland game saying, I wouldn't see Scotland if um, they, they were in my backyard and, and now they're the biggest support Scotland supporters ever. And then I were probably at that game. And the who, who's mean? The other John, uh, I remember having conversations. I said no names. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, I, I don't mind being the one that dropped them in it. So that's right. <laughs> I'm sure uh, it was our go again. Yeah, so you've got oh, two, more, um, two more to go. Each you both play. Yeah. Yeah. You played. And it Shankland up front. Yep, yeah, he scored that game. Um right, who's your final one? Chris and Scott. You said Christy played both, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Christy right. McGinn played both. Uh-huh. We had We've had McGregor play both as well. We've had Dykes already. We've had Tierney already. If we got that uh, centre back, is that what we've got? So we get Tierney at the back with Gallagher. McTominay was taking this. Oh. Your defence is gone. So defence, I McTominay, that was the other one. So McTominay, that's, that's it. We've got the right side, the left side. Midfielders, was there a float? Was there another kind of attacking minded player? Fraser or something. Mm, I don't think so. I think it was Fraser, but is there somebody? Do you know Ryan Jack? <laughs> yes, I think you've got it. I think Ryan Jack. Is that an absolute blinder? Did they not? Yeah. Aye. Ryan Jack is correct. So you've um, got your point there, which puts you on three and a half. Um, Andy, you need this last player to win. So, who are the players that I? That were removed at the beginning. So removed at the beginning were Scott McTominay, Andy Robertson, John McGinn, Cal McGregor, and Ryan Christie. Now, I know who scored the last goal in this game, but I'm not convinced they started. So I'm just going to mull over that for a wee second. Uh, but no one else is really jumping to mind. Okay, Armstrong. No, the answer oh. is James Forrest. Uh. We played a 4-3-3. It was Christy Shankland and Forrest up front. So, oh, damn it. the team of Scott and Chris have won three and a half points. I don't think we really, really want yeah, to. No, yeah, I see what happens when you read it. <laughs> and his own goal of given the answer of Lawrence Shanklin's proved decisive. But did I not say one of the bits I really enjoyed was reading the team lines before yes, the I, games that, again? That, so, see, well, see, eight percent of bit red. Made the Andy's going to get payback on me when it comes to the next Hamden North quiz, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> to get his, his mate Shiak to win. <laughs> I am looking forward to that quiz, John. Uh, very excited. It's going to be like nineteen thousand attended the Kazakhstan game. Name them. We <laughs> <laughs> oui, Jimmy, uh, <laughs> uh, no, that no, that was a good quiz, guys. Yeah. So, uh, um, last words to you, Andy. Um, you know, um, where can people um, buy a nation again? People can buy a nation again at 
Waterstones from Scott and Silverburn. They can hopefully <laughs> buy it at other Waterstones as well. They can order it on Amazon. Should be available in WH Smith. If they would like a signed copy, feel free to slide into my DMs because I can place an order from the distributor and then get it posted out to you once I've signed it. So that's no qualms either. Uh, and lastly to you, John, yeah, thanks very much for having me on for a wee plug and a, a good couple of hours of Scotland chat. No worries. Well, thanks very much, um, Andy, for coming on and congratulations on the launch. Scott and Chris, thanks as ever for coming back for a, a throwback. I know how much he's loved these. And um, thanks to anyone who's been listening. And um, if you're listening, go out and buy Andy's book. Thursday night and he dies off to the left. David Marshall gives us a night we will never forget. David Marshall. Na 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 David Marshall Na 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 David Marshall